Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. We're in this second to last week of this series, Under Pressure. And today I want to talk about a future hope. Uh, and, and James wants to talk to you about a future hope. Um, uh, this series, Under Pressure, has been about uh, how we live in the way of Jesus when you feel like you're under all of this pressure to live in a very different way than the way Jesus calls us to live. And, and today, James wants to focus on this idea of our future hope and what that has to do with how we live our lives right now. But I want to frame this for you um, with, with a story. I don't know how many of you enjoy going out on boats. Some of you maybe have boats here in, on one of the lakes in town or something like that. Um, I, I like going out on the lake uh, in a boat, but uh, what I don't love as much, and I learned this the hard way a couple years ago, is I don't love going out on a boat in the ocean. I don't know if any of you feel that way. The ocean just feels way more daunting to me. Uh, but a few years ago, uh, my wife Jillian and I went on vacation to St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and one day uh, we decided we were going to go out on a snorkeling trip. Uh, there, there's a, an island off the coast of St. Croix called Buck Island. It's an entirely a national park, that whole island. Uh, there's a beautiful coral reef there, and you can just snorkel, white sandy beaches. I want to be there right now as I'm thinking about it. Um, but uh, we went out on, on this boat, actually, that exact boat, and uh, that's Buck Island in the dif- distance. How many of you want to be right there right now? Um, and, and so we got on the boat. We're going to go snorkeling. I've really never done any snorkeling in my life, uh, but we're, we're going out. We pull out from the dock we're all, with all these other vacationers and stuff, and then we head out uh, through the harbor, and then we get out into the open ocean. It's about a 45-minute boat ride out to Buck Island, and uh, something about this boat here, it's, it's almost, I think I'm, I'm describing this right, but it's almost like one of those catamaran boats uh, in the sense that there, there's like a big, I, I'm not a boat guy, so this is where it probably shows, obviously, but there's like a big kind of open net space uh, in the front in, of the boat, and it wasn't like a small net space, it was a big net space, so it gave you the opportunity that as the boat was picking up speed, you, you could see the water going up and down and up and down, and the waves start kind of splashing up, and you're getting sprayed by the water, and then I started to feel the boat going up and down and up and down, and then it suddenly dawned on me that I don't do well on boats in the ocean, and I was getting seasick. This was not a good start, and we had about another 40 minutes to go, and I turned to Jillian and was like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can make it, and she's like, okay, just relax, you know, just breathe, Keep your head down. I'm starting. I'm on the verge of panicking. I don't go on roller coasters, guys. I don't do anything. If I'm not driving the car, I get car sick, okay? It's not pretty. Uh, so I'm on this boat having a really difficult time, and I just like try and put my head down and, and breathe, and obviously uh, that didn't help. It, it was about the same the entire way, and I was so happy to get out, and I wanted to kiss the sandy beach. I was so happy to be off that boat, even though I knew I had a 45-minute ride back the other direction. Um, but... Uh, that that uh, taught me something about my, uh, l- well, I should say my, my 
car sick level or my seasick level. I get queasy very easy. But I actually learned something uh, about that experience more recently. Uh, I did the exact uh, wrong thing to do when you're seasick. And maybe if some of you are boat people or ocean people, you know this. Um, but apparently the worst thing you can do when you're seasick is to kind of put your head down or try and focus on keeping your balance or anything like that. Focusing on what's right in front of you is the worst thing you can possibly do. Your body is overcompensating for the rocking that's happening on the boat. And that's why you get seasick and get worse. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to stand there and you're supposed to look out on the horizon. And if you look at the horizon line where the sky meets the sea, uh, your body starts to calibrate itself differently and balances out and you'll actually get less seasick if not, no, not having any symptoms of seasickness. I didn't know that. I did the wrong thing. But, but this is why I tell you this story is because what James wants to talk to us about today is, is, is how often we do this in our spiritual journey where we focus on things that are uh, kind of temporary in our lives in the moment and, and we don't realize it, but it's actually often causing a spiritual seasickness in us. And what James wants to do today uh, is remind us of our future hope. What do I mean by future hope? Of Jesus' return, uh, of his coming to renew and restore all of creation and and the hope that we have of him doing that. And, And what he wants to call us to do is he wants to call us to live with our eyes if you will, to the horizon of Jesus' return. And when we look to our future hope, we we actually can have our lives uh, calibrated to live like he's already returned. And we can live like that in the present. And any, any sense of that spiritual seasickness can be dealt with. And so uh, I want to read James chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 12. And, and I want to talk to you about two ways, uh, James says, we're called to live in our future hope now. So let's read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. James writes, Look here, you rich people. Weep and wail. And weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Dear brothers and sisters, uh, be patient. Sorry, I haven't, I've like not had you guys following along here on the screen. I hope you have this written down. Be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. 
we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Simply just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we we invite you to open up our eyes, open up our hearts. Uh, Would you uh, reveal to us and illuminate your word to us today? Uh, Jesus, more than anything, uh, people don't want to hear me. They don't need to hear me preach today. What they need is to, is to meet you, Jesus. So I, I just pray that you would be present with us and among us, your people. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, James wants to call us uh, and talk to us about two ways we're called to live out our future hope right now. Um, is that an intense scripture passage to read? Where some of you like, oh, geez, James bringing the doom and gloom on, right? Uh, and so we're going to talk about two ways he's calling us to live. And, and here, I want to talk to you first so we can understand why James is looking that way. Just like I was t- describing on the boat, uh, having to look out the, at the horizon so my body could adjust so I wouldn't be seasick. Uh, James uh, is, is caught up in an understanding and a vision of Jesus that, that knows that uh, the ultimate reality is he is returning and he's going to make everything right in the world. He's going to restore, he's going to renew. This Bible says he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Uh, there won't be any more death. People who have died in, in Christ Jesus are going to be raised to life in a new physical body. People who are alive at that moment are going to be changed and, and they're going to be uh, made new. And, and he talks about, you know, the Bible talks about how they're beating their swords and their weapons of war are going to be made into plowshares and, and things for gathering fruit and vegetables and living a, a flourishing life. It's this vision of God just ending all of the chaos and, and the pain and, and the terror of the world. And as Christians, part of our gospel uh, message is to live like this is already happening. So we look to the, just like when I'm, I'm seasick and I need to look out uh, to adjust my body. And that's part of our call is to live like it's already happening. And, and so uh, what James is doing here is, is he wants us to be reminded that part of what uh, Jesus' return includes is judgment. Now, that's the big J word, right? People have left church over the word judgment. They've experienced judgment. They, they've been hurt by judgment. They, they've, they've no friends who've been terribly hurt by judgment. But, but I want to, James talks about judgment in some ways very negatively in this passage. But I want to maybe reframe judgment for just a minute for, for us. Um, judgment isn't positive or negative. Judgment is about determining the quality or the substance of something. Let me give you an example. Um, how many of you ever watch, uh, you watch America's Got Talent? Any of those shows, um, the, the old American Idol, I, I feel like that's old, that's not running anymore, right? Um, any of those shows, The Voice, right? Uh, or, or maybe you've been in a, a talent show or a battle of the bands or a baking competition or, or something like that in your lifetime. Now, how many of you put your blood, sweat, and tears into this amazing thing and you worked hard and you know you've got one of the best 
uh, talents or you've got the best cake or pie or whatever it is and, and then you put it down there at the contest and the judges come by and you just say to them, whoa, 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 no, don't judge me. Don't you want them to judge your work so they can show, they can approve the great quality of it? Isn't that what you want? Yeah, so what happens with judgment in the church is it's, getting, it's gotten wrapped up in shame and it's gotten wrapped up in the negative side of it. And we forget that there's actually a, a, a hope that God will judge us if we're in Jesus because our uh, righteousness isn't because of anything we've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. And so, we're, we, man, I, I kind of hope I'm, I'm judged because I want to be seen to be in Jesus. And I want, I, want to, I want the qualities of Jesus to be seen and perceived in my life. You, want, you know you want to win that blue ribbon. You want to win. So no, no one would do that though, right? But when it comes to church, because we have been so wounded, and, and rightfully so, like we have, we have experienced incredible pain, rightfully so, we have often walked away because people are, are, are heaping shame upon us. They're trying to be the ones that judge us instead of God being the judge. Uh, and, and, and we experience uh, not community and people who want to build us up and encourage that. We, we experience tremendous pain and, and there's no help in that world, right? So I just wanted to say that for a second because this passage is loaded with judgment statements and, and it's so easy for us to just hear nothing but negativity when it comes to that word judgment. So, so I want you to hear that, that there is something James wants to call us to. He wants us to have qualities in our lives as followers of Jesus that, that are perceived to get that blue ribbon prize, in a sense, he wants to see the life of Jesus that is now our life. He wants to see it lived out in us. And, and so that's why we, what happens when we come to this passage. And he says, the, the first way that you need to be living out your future hope now is, is with your money and with your possessions. This is what he talks about starting in, in verse 1. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Now, I know all of us in the room are going, whew, good thing I'm not rich. That's not for me. We can move on. Remember when I shared with you guys a couple weeks ago, there, there's an a online, I'm, I'm a nerd like this, so I love these kinds of things. There's a global wealth calculator. Uh, and, and remember, you, you can go on there and, and you can uh, type in your annual income, your household size, what country you live in, and based on the cost of living where you live, all these things, it will determine where you are on the global wealth scale, basically like 0% to 100%, right? Did you know, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point, but if you're a family of four and you only make, I plugged in like $30,000 a year in the United States, I think you're wealthier than about 80% of the world's population. That's, that's with cost of living of the United States. That's considering that factored in. Go, go Google it. It's fascinating. So, so when we, we, a lot of times as the American church, we look at it and go, whew, good thing I'm not wealthy, but... Uh, uh, there was a sociological study done by a, a Christian sociologist, Michael Emerson, and, and he and his team pointed out that the American church is actually the wealthiest group of Christians at any time in the history of the world and the history of the church. There, so the, the rich people that James is addressing here are not rich compared to us. Sorry for the reframe, but he's talking to us, church. Your wealth is rotting away. 
Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The, the very wealth you're counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. What James is not saying here is don't have any nice things. What he's saying is, is the, this group of very wealthy Christians has lost sight of their true nature and true value. See, here, here's the, how many of you are grammarians in the room? Uh, these verses here, two and three, your wealth's rotting away. Your, your clothes are like moth-eaten rags. Gold and silver's corroded. He, he says all these in the perfect tense. Okay, here's what the perfect tense means. And the grammarians are going to say that's wrong. Uh, but this is generally speaking what the perfect tense means. It, it's describing the nature of the thing uh, at, at its, it, we could say at its completion. It might not look like it's rotted right now, but you need to understand that the actual nature of that thing is it's rotten. That's what the perfect tense is. Okay, the grammarians are nodding. I see teachers nodding their heads. Whew, I got that right. I got that right. Uh, but, but they are, they are James is, uses the perfect tense here to say, hey, you think this is valuable now. He's not saying this is valuable now and later it's not going to be valuable. He's saying the actual nature and substance of this stuff is temporary and it's not as valuable as you think it is. Yet you keep trying to accumulate it. And he actually says, this stuff is so dangerous to you, uh, it will eat away your flesh like fire. The accumulation of stuff. The love of stuff will eat away your flesh like fire. Jesus says uh, once, he, he said, it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It'd be easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, there's a very uh, incorrect uh, commentary uh, idea about that passage that says, well, there was a gate called the, the, the needle or the camel's eye. Uh, I can't, can't remember exactly what it's called. And, and, uh, and that, it just was really hard for a camel to get through that because it's completely incorrect. Uh, I hate to break it to you if, if you uh, learned that. Maybe I could have said that a little nicer to you uh, in this moment. Um, just teasing. But literally, it, it came from a different rabbinical tradition. Talk to me later if you want to nerd out about it, where that idea came from. Uh, but Jesus was literally saying, literally, a camel, it's easier for them to get through the eye of a needle. And this is what James is picking up on when he says, listen, this, this uh, wealth uh, obsession accumulation, it's going to like, destroy you. It, it's going to eat away your flesh like fire. Because this stuff it is not... Uh, of long-term value, it is corroded. The actual nature of it is, is nothing. It's moth-eaten rags. And, and this is similar, like I said, to when I was on that boat. We focus on these, these temporal uh, possessions. Uh, we, 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 uh, we focus and fixate on accumulating the, these things and these creature comforts that we love. I, I love my, my, you know, getting my latte, getting my coffee, and again, I'm not saying there's something wrong with getting the coffee or the latte. I, I'm saying, like, what, what are the things we're focused on? Because if we're focused on what's here in this temporary time in front of us, we, we are losing sight of the future hope we have. And when we're not living from that future hope and living focused on this, we're, we're going to get our soul out of whack and we might be spiritually seasick and not even realize it. And so he's warning them and, he's in, and we are being warned to just consider, how much do I love this stuff? Do, do, I, do I understand that these nice things that I have, do I understand their temporary value and temporary nature? Do I live like that's true? Do I, do I live with my eyes focused on that future hope? 
This is probably one of the hardest messages to preach to, to American Christians. Like I mentioned, that, that uh, study that was done at the American church. This is uncomfortable for us because we have been taught, not even just in the church, but just in wider society, that uh, we can, it's good. This is what helps make us happy. Buy more things. Black Friday. Prime Day was last week. It's the celebration of more and getting more and accumulating more. There was a, a story of a, a pastor back in the uh, 20th century and he read this opening seven verses about the, the warnings to the rich and, and he didn't say who wrote it. He, he, he actually said, oh, this comes from a, a, a liberal anarchist uh, of, of that time period. She was a... a rights activist and anarchist, I don't remember her name, but the pastor started his, his message to this group of pastors and said, oh, here's a quote from her. And then he read James 1 through 7. And they were in outrage, and they said she needed to be deported from this country, and went on, and then he's like, I'm just kidding, that was from James chapter 5, 1 through 7. And, and it just shows, uh, I think for us and, and myself, uh, how uh, steeped we are in, in a belief that more is more. You ever feel like that? More is more. I, I find myself falling into that trick and that trap all the time that more is more. And we don't realize, I think, a lot of how interconnected the world is. And James goes on to say, listen, this isn't even about the stuff. It's, it's more about um, how the stuff is affecting other people. He talks about these landowners. The, the, the context of the time was these wealthy landowners who... Uh, who uh, would, didn't really want anything to do with the land itself. They didn't want to deal with managing it. They were incredibly wealthy. You'd know the names of the Roman era, era, era like uh, Plutarch was one of them, Cicero. These people owned massive uh, plots of land, and, and they would hire people to deal with it far away from them in, in far off lands, and just they would gain the profits from it and, and get the, the benefits from it. Uh, but often the workers were paid little to, to no wages. It was harsh treatment. Uh, and, and James is actually calling out those who were in the church that were among this landed uh, elite and, and said, hey, the cries of those that are harvesting in your fields, even though you're not directly responsible for their treatment, it's these foremen you've put in place, the, the cries of those in, in the fields have reached the ears of the lords of heaven's armies. You know what that phrase, the lord of heaven's armies, is associated with? It's associated with Old Testament, like, judgment of anyone who has oppressed the poor and the powerless. And this is a New Testament. This is This is weird. How many of you feel slightly uncomfortable right now? I'm going to be honest. I felt really uncomfortable all week re preparing this message. But here James is saying you need to understand how uh, your actions as the wealthy people are influencing other people who are less fortunate than you. How many of you have seen the movie Blood Diamond from years back? It's about uh, unethically uh, obtained diamonds, right? And the, the stories surrounding some of the mi diamond mines in Central Africa. H you know, how, how many of us have uh, invested money, a significant wardrobe in, in really cheap, fast fashion coming from uh, factories in Malaysia? You hear about the, the factory several years ago in Malaysia that completely collapsed because it wasn't being, the factory floor wasn't being cared for, it wasn't being... Uh, dealt with properly and the workers were in torrid conditions and 
and it was completely just killed all, most of the workers in there. The, the investments we make with our purchases here in the United States actually have global ramifications. The kinds of funds that we invest in with our retirement and things like that cause, uh, uh, have an impact around the world. Have you read lately in the paper um, and in the news about uh, Amazon's uh, warehouses during the pandemic and how the, the turnover rate of employees was just insanely high because the employees were, were burning out, were having mental health issues, were having uh, physical health conditions that were happening on the job because they couldn't keep up with the pace of trying to get packages through the warehouse. I don't know, maybe James might write today if he wrote this, the cries of those in the Amazon warehouses have reached the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, full disclosure, I have an Amazon Prime account. I, I, I put money into this. I, to be honest, all week I've talked to my wife and go, I'm honestly struggling and wondering if this is something God might be asking me to give up. Personally. I'm not, I'm not telling you this is what you need to do. Here, here's my point in all of this and James's point and, and why I kind of have to push it so hard for us in a materialistic culture is, is because I think we need to just see how comfortable and relatively wealthy we are and w with generally speaking what ease we're able to operate in our life and, and sometimes at the expense of other people. And, and my question for myself, and I'll just share for me personally this week was, do I like this comfort and ease so much that I'm not willing to make a different choice? And, and when, I, when I've begun to think about that question, I, I, I recognize that I'm finding myself making decisions on temporary, what's easy for me, what's quickest for me, what's most convenient for me. And, and I'm losing sight of my future hope and how Jesus has called me to live and, and how he's invited me to live from a different place, a place of hope, a place of, of new creation, a, a place where, where Jesus is making all things new. And, and how am I inviting people into that? How am I leveraging my money and my resources in such a way that I'm inviting people into a space where all things are being made new? I know some, some people in our church during the pandemic, man, some of their stories have amazed me. Wealthy people, successful people, they bent over backwards to, to not use the, the, the advantage in their position they had as owners of companies, people of large, uh, large amounts of wealth. They bent over backwards to uh, make sure that they didn't have to let a single employee go during the pandemic. They restructured people's work hours to spread things out. They, they figured out how they could infuse cash into places maybe they wouldn't normally do. And, and they leveraged what they had in order to care for those who don't have as much. And it's the same for us. Maybe we don't own businesses. Maybe we don't have uh, wealthy, we're not wealthy maybe by American standards. But what do we have that we could use to leverage for the well-being of others? Very simple uh, one maybe some of you are familiar with. There's the company or the foundation Charity Water. They, they say on their website, you know, if you give $40 a month, uh, every month for a year, uh, 12 people will have fresh water that entire year where they wouldn't actually have clean, healthy water to drink at all. It, the water would just make them sick. Possibly they would die. Man, 40 bucks a month? That's like, I don't know how much I spend on coffee every week. That's like $9 a week. 
I'm just considering for myself and for us, like, what, what are the ways Jesus might be calling you to fix your eyes on your future hope instead of what's right in front of us? And we have a call, a responsibility as believers because uh, what Jesus is going to do is when he returns is not only invite us into this future hope, this amazing life that he has for us in the new creation, but he's also going to, the, the Bible describes uh, how uh, it'll be almost like God, the illustration is that God will almost like pile up all the things we've done, all the decisions we've made in our, our life and like imagine you like light a match to it. And everything that's of quality, say a precious metal, something that stands, withstands fire, will survive. And everything else will burn up. And I think James invites us in in this moment with our, our possessions and our, and our finances, our money, to say, what will be left when God does that with our life? It's not a guilt thing, it's not a shame thing, not a fear thing. But just really, if we say we're following Jesus... I want to invite you into that. What will that be like? Am I fixing my eyes on what's right in front of me or am I fixing my eyes on my future hope? Second way that, that Jesus uh, is calling us to our, our look at our future hope, not only our money and possessions, but he's also called us to live in our future hope with our speech, our words, how we talk. You know, our words carry weight. This is a huge... Uh, theme throughout the whole book of James. Remember, we talked about the power of the tongue. You were created to have words that carry incredible weight and meaning and significance. Did you know that? And, and so right off the bat, in verse 7, James calls the church, be patient. Be patient. Wait for the Lord's return. He says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. Why would he say that? Why would he say that in, in relation to God's return? How many of you get frustrated? Well, how many of you got frustrated one time last week? Maybe. Just never. I never get frustrated. You, I, I know you don't get frustrated. You know someone who gets frustrated a lot, though. Maybe you're married to them. I don't know. Uh, I'm just saying. But anyway, you, you, how many of you got frustrated last week and you might have said something you regretted later? <laughs> Everyone's like, most people's hands probably should be going up. How, how many of you thought something that you regretted later? How many of you muttered things to yourself and maybe that pattern repeated all week, that grumbling, you're just chewing out, how could that person do I can't believe they said that. Oh yeah, well, if they said this, I'll say this to them. You know you win the argument in your head with them all the time right, when you're having that and you, and you do it. That's what James is talking about here. Man, when we lose sight of this future hope, uh, we can get sidetracked side and blown off course whenever uh, frustrating things happen in our lives. And if we're not careful, when we're scared, when we're frustrated, when we're consumed by what's happening in the moment, uh, our speech starts to reflect that instead of our future hope. And, and I don't just mean words you speak. Maybe it's things you post on, on social media. Uh, maybe it's, it's things that you text to people, whatever it might be. What, how your words are, are conveyed, how you put them out there in the world carries weight. And if it's full of grumbling, if it's full of criticizing, uh, if it's full of complaining, uh, it's probably a sign that there's something in us that's kind of impatient and frustrated and annoyed and, and instead of being caught up in the future hope of Jesus. I have a two-year-old. I live sometimes in the grumble. 
honestly. And it's not even like her. She asked him maybe a million questions, but then maybe my wife and I have a disagreement. We had something that happened last week, and it was just like a moment of like, ugh, disgust. And everything's just added when you have kids almost, right? It, it, it gets exacerbated. But James wants us to, to look up and understand, our, hey, our words are going to be judged. He's going to judge the nature of our words. Were these good words? How, how did these words, were they words to criticize and grumble or were these words that built people up? Were these empathetic words that, you know, I'm not saying be a doormat and let people walk all over you when they're not kind to you, but, but are these words full of love? Are these words uh, full of kindness? Are they full of encouragement, of building up, of understanding, of empathy, or are they full of our own kind of judgment and guilting people and shame and manipulation and grumbling and complaining? What's the nature of those words? And, and the second part of, of the, how our speech, we're called to look to our future hope when it comes to our speech, is, is this idea here in verse 12. James says this kind of funny line. Never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. What on earth does a yes or a no have to do with sinning and being condemned? Well, think about this. Our words carry weight, right? Your words carry a tremendous amount of weight. God created your words to be powerful. They can build people up. They can tear people down. But the other thing that they can do is they can teach people how you want to be treated. Here's what I mean. Uh, just imagine this scenario with me. Uh, Say, I'm going to pick on you, Lindsay. Say, Lindsay here, our worship leader. She's, hey, we got this event coming up. Hey, she comes to you and she says, can you come early to help me set some chairs up for this? And you go, yeah, absolutely. I'll be there. In fact, I'll be there a little earlier. I'll do whatever I can. You got it. I'm there. The day of the event shows up and you're a no-show. What did Lindsay learn about your yes? You can't trust your Yes. It's supposed to carry weight and have meaning and be significant, but it's weightless and useless. Flip side of that, Lindsay comes to you and says, hey, we've got this event, really could use your help, you know, can, can you come help me? And you say no. And then she comes again, are you sure? Like, I really could use help. And you say, no, I don't think I can do that. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, okay, yeah, maybe I can come, I can come, I can do it. And, you, and, and so you change your no to a yes, and you show up. What did Lindsay learn about your no? If she pressures you enough, she'll get the yes she wants. That's a simple example. I hope we take opportunities in our lives to say yes when it's maybe a little bit inconvenient for us, and, and we have healthy boundaries and say no when we need to. But a lot of times what happens with our yes and no is they're really muddled and confused because uh, some of us are people pleasers. Are you a people pleaser? I struggle a little bit with the people pleasing. I want people to like me. I don't want them to like, think they that I'm not helpful or whatever. So when someone asks me, it, I, it's really hard not to say yes all the time. Do some of you just say yes to everything? Yes all the time? And, and, and so what happens when you do that is you're overcommitted. And how many of you have been in a situation where you're like, oh no, I took too much on today. What am I going to do? And you've got like eight yeses lined up for the day, but you really only have space for three. But what happens there is, is you start blowing people off 
or saying, I'm so sorry I can't make it. Because you overcommitted. What good is your yes if it doesn't actually mean yes? You'd be much better off in that situation simply saying no and sticking to your no. <clears throat> what good is it on the other hand? Some of us have been in uh, uh, abusive relationships or, or we've, we've had people that manipulate us and they, and they know how to pressure us and, and we felt pressured and we often would change our no to a yes. And they just learned if we just push a little more, if I just ask again, I know I'm going to get a yes out of them. And what we're doing with that yet, when we misuse our yes and our no, is we actually are teaching people how they can treat us, what they can expect from us. And here's, here's why this is important. Um, God is saying, and James is writing here, you're responsible for your yes and your no, not the people who pressured you, not the people who asked you. They're responsible to ask, you're responsible to give an honest yes or no. And when we don't do that well, our words don't really have the meaning and the power and the weight that God wants them to have. They don't, God doesn't need you to make a big promise and like James says, like swear an oath. Oh yeah, I'll be there. In fact, I'm going to be there early. That's kind of our modern version of what that might be. We talk a big game, but then don't show up. But what James is saying is, hey, God wants your words to have weight. So, so whether you're criticizing and you're grumbling and you're complaining and you're tearing people down or, or your yes and your no don't mean what you say they mean, whether it's either of those, James is saying, hey, your words matter and your words are supposed to be powerful. And I want you to put your words to good use because your words also, when Jesus returns, will say, how did you use your words? You know, we've been through intense political seasons. Jesus is going to ask, how did you use your words? Not, did you use your words to convince someone to join your side? He wants to know, how did you use your words? Did they tear people down or did they build people up? How did you use your words in family relationships, in work relationships? Did you overcommit? Did you say no and get run over and start saying yes all the time? Or did your words have, ma- have, uh, have meaning and weight? Do you have boundaries to your life that are healthy? You're responsible for that, no one else. Be- because when you have those healthy boundaries, uh, you are empowering yourself to say yes to the best things. Yes to the things that God's called you to do in your life. And so Jesus wants you to, to jump in to using your speech in such a way that you're not focused on just kind of making it through the day and saying yes to get people off your back. Sometimes, uh, husbands, I, you know, I, I'm one of them, so I, I know this happens. There's a, sometimes your wife asks you something and you give yes, but there's a no in your heart. I'm sorry, some of you are just getting like, man, you're like, why did I come today? Some of you, I, I get it, I do the same thing. And I go, oh, why did I say that? I know I don't want to say yes to that. Why did I say that? God wants you to have integrity in your words. And you have integrity in your words when, when you're not focused on just making it through this half or this quarter of the football game just to get people off your back, just to get out the door on a Sunday. He wants you to have a bigger vision than that. You're called to have eternal vision. If you're looking even like a five-year plan, that's too small. If you've got a 10-year plan for your life, that's too small. 
You have a 15-year plan, 50-year plan, too small. You're supposed to have eyes on your future hope on Jesus' return. That's the size of your plan. How are you living to set yourself up to live that kind of plan, that kind of life? I, I know some of this stuff is heavy, honestly. This is, this is weighty stuff. I, I wrestled this week. I struggled this week myself. I'm like, oh, oops, nope. There, there's that one. Yep, that one again. But, but I want to have a God-sized plan. I want to have eyes that are fixed on my future hope. Not just on getting through the day. Not just on getting through the week. I, I want to have what James talks about, having endurance. I want to go the distance. I want to finish well. Do you want to finish well? Team, you want to come up? We're going to close in just a minute. I want to share one more story. I was watching, um, I was watching the uh, first stage of the Tour de France yesterday. Anyone ever watched the Tour de France? Had it on yesterday morning. And uh, one of these guys about, probably about halfway through the race, if I remember correctly, he was in the, the leader pack, about five people. They were kind of out ahead of the rest of the group of riders. And, and, and he kind of pulled back a little bit like he was going to, get his, his team's support car to maybe get a new bottle of water or something like that. And so they all were not really paying attention. And then he blew past them and took off. And for a majority of the rest of the race, he had a two and a half, three minute lead way out on his own ahead of everyone. He, he blew past them. But here was the problem. He wasn't thinking totally about the end of the race. He didn't have the endurance to make it all the way. His eye was on maybe being the first one up the next mountain or being the first one to, to make it through the, the sprint section of the, of the road for that day. He didn't actually win that leg of the, of the race yesterday. Another guy who'd just been in the pack the whole time, but he had his eyes on when he was gonna finish well. He had his eyes on the finish line. He, he knew that if he was steady, if he endured, if he kept his focus on what was ahead and not what was right here in front of him, he had a chance to win. And he won. And he won the first stage. I want you to have eyes to fix on your future hope. And there's a call in that from Jesus. There's a call in that to live differently with our money, our, our possessions. There's a call in that to, to be thoughtful about our speech, our words, our yes, our no. There's a call in that to be people who live way bigger than 10, 20 year plans. People that live with a future hope. We're a future hope kind of people. And it calls us to, to something different so that we can endure. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.